0: This is a Culture Inject Production. Hello, my name is Chirag, and welcome to the Nevers Podcast. Today we'll talk about Episode 3 of the Nevers titled Ignition, so stick around.
1: If you'd like to follow us online, visit our website at hbothenevers.com, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube, at HBO the Nevers, and at The Nevers Podcast without an A. You can stream The Nevers Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, YouTube and anywhere else that you can stream podcasts.
2: If you have any ideas, interviews, requests, comments or questions, email us at theneverspodcast at gmail.com. Please also rate and review our podcast as it helps our podcast reach more listeners. Speaking of reviews, we have one here from Nico Angelus on YouTube. He wrote, in response to our review of episode one, That was a really good review. Loved all three of you and your insight. Thank you, Nico.
1: And another one from Dice Catastrophe on Twitter, who tweeted, uh, Like, I enjoyed talking with friends and family about Lovecraft Country Radio as much as I loved talking with them about the actual show if i can get people to watch the nevers i probably won't bother with the touch base the official podcast um the nevers podcast seems much better so far so if you're watching the nevers listen to at hbo the nevers which is us <laughs> uh, it's way better than the official podcast and is closer to the official podcast for lovecraft country uh but without the cast cameos so that's kind of opposite to a review that we got last week from tomorrow
0: uh, we have received an email last week asking us not to spoil subsequent episodes that we'd be reviewing at the end of our show. Monty wrote in saying, At the end of your otherwise great episode 2 review, you spoiled the plot of episode 3 without warning. Please don't do this. Some of us actively avoid spoilers. Coming in as fresh as possible makes the experience more enjoyable as plot points are revealed when and as the author intended. Timing is key to storytelling, and spoilers, well, spoil that key ingredient. I don't even watch the after-episode interviews because seeing the actors out of character talking about their characters breaks the illusion just a bit. I realize and respect not everyone shares my opinion or enthusiasm on the issue, but even just a quick spoiler warning would give folks like me a second to hit pause or fast-forward to opt out. Thanks again for the work and thought you put into the podcast. It shows. Thanks, Monty. Going forward, we won't provide a synopsis for the next episode. We uh, respect your, your thoughts and opinions and your enthusiasm, and uh, we'll make sure not to do that.
1: But here's the synopsis for this episode review. So episode three called Ignition, airing uh, April 25th, 2021. So, Penance creates an amplifier to spread Mary's song across the city, but first, Mary must find her elusive voice. As danger mounts against her group, Amalia propositions an unlikely ally, and sets out to expand the orphanage's reach.
2: Within this uh, episode, we have all of the usual cast and crew returning, and I would like to introduce Martin Ford as Nicholas Odium purble who we saw briefly in episode one, and Brett Curtis as George Thomas. This episode was written by Kevin Lowe and directed by David Sami.
1: So uh, initial impressions for this episode, I really enjoyed it again. I felt like it was very, very heavy action compared to the other two. It was a lot um, a lot more action. It still had the same kind of uh, choppy feeling as the second episode. So, you know, it's lots and lots of little bits jumping back and forth i liked that because it was like here's a little bit of backstory for this character and then here's an action sequence and then you know giving us a bit of variation throughout so my favorite thing from this episode was the the fight scene between amalia and odium i thought it was fantastic i don't think there was anything i didn't really like about it
2: i think for me um yeah the same really i i liked the fight between odium and amalia and it wasn't, I wouldn't say an unmemorable episode for me, but it, it had a lot of things that happened in, in, you know, uh, loads of different kind of segments and, um where there was no real flow to it. There are bits of it that I, I feel like I, I can't really remember all that well, but the, yeah, the standout point was that Amalia and, um, fight, that was brilliant.
0: I enjoyed this episode too. Uh, I, the the most significant thing for me was the Mary scene in the very end. And then I noticed there were a lot of like very strong rejections to infidelity in this episode. Like we have Hugo Swan reminding Detective Frank Mundy of their kind of relationship. And he gets pissed off and says, I was drunk. And then we have some lady uh, hinting to Lord Masson. Of some rumors of his taking a mistress. I think she says Amalia. And then he gets pissed off and fires someone. And then we have Amalia. Mm -hmm. Who kind of goaded Dr. Horatio. Into acknowledging their almost infidelity. And he also got pissed off. So a lot of folks getting pissed off about infidelity. I liked the digging into Amalia. As an unconventional hero. As a leader who is perhaps not qualified to be the leader, not a good role model. Like, she's out there huffing opium instead of <laughs> being her narcotized friend's designated driver, straight up exposing the, her, that almost infidelity in front of the young, innocent folks in the orphanage and all sorts of reckless behavior. And, I mean, maybe that's kind of the, the heart of this episode, where Mary kind of directly questions Amalia and and her qualifications and whether this is even something worth uh, subscribing to. We can probably talk about that later. Uh, I thought this was really Bonfire Annie's episode, just in terms of structurally how it played out, because Bonfire Annie, hers is the first recognizable face that we see coming out from the shadows. And then hers is also the last face we see after the heartbreaking thing that happens. And her showing up at the end is almost like a salve after the third-degree burns of losing Mary, which is ironic considering Annie's the one who brings the fire. But I liked that arc, and we can talk about that later a little bit more. There's also a very strong theme of the, the touched... Uh, is being touched a curse, or is it a gift? And that question was very much left in limbo at the end. And, and I mean, we'll, we'll talk about that again. I'm, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm just uh, 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 predicting us talking more about each of these things, but uh, mm-hmm. hopefully we'll get to it. And uh, just one more thing I wanted to mention was the Hugo-Swan-Lavinia parallel that I, I noticed. So they're both using the Touched. And interestingly, most of the people in the public would look at Hugo Swan as the one who's doing the immoral, illegal things and abusing them, and they would look at Lavinia as kind of the benevolent champion of the Touched. And I noticed in this episode, it kind of makes the opposite case, that Hugo is actually providing the Touched with paying jobs, with housing, with safety, even though on the surface it looks like he's exploiting them, and maybe he is to an extent, but on the opposite side of the spectrum, where you'd think Lavinia is the the champion, she was in the last episode exposed as the secret Nazi so I, I thought that was interesting, a nice little parallel and I, I thought that whole scene in in the Fairman's Club with the audition the auditioning part was a bit skeevy for me. If I had to choose one thing I didn't like in this episode, the it, it felt a little too Harvey Weinsteiny, but other than that, I enjoyed this episode. And with that we can dovetail into the beat by beat analysis. So the episode begins with Bonfire Annie shutting down the Beggar King's operations at the dock. So Amalia and Penance confront her and they try to recruit her.
1: Yeah. I thought that was a great scene. It's like this, again, this great mix of like action and comedy and story. So you've obviously got Bonfire Annie and Amalia and they're seemingly going to have a fight. But then you've got Penance jumping in with her little gadget. And uh, I I feel like it's finding humour in the places where you might not expect it. And it's always the funniest of little interactions. Obviously, she just kind of ends up disappearing but before that yeah she says that she left malady's gang because she was sick of riddles after uh amalia starts talking almost in riddles to her again
0: and she's very much like in the beginning a mercenary still or at least she was a mercenary working for malady but we see her in this episode fighting for herself i guess which is a some transformation from the last episode and then at the very end, we see, um, Bonfire Annie trading in her mercenary gang stuff for something higher than that. A mission, maybe. A better world. So She's finally believing in something. A bit reminiscent of maybe Malcolm Reynolds in Serenity. He finally mm-hmm. finds something to believe in and something to fight for and can't stop the signal. After that scene we cut to an exchange between Doctor Horatio and Amalia where we learn that Amalia and Horatio's feelings were deepening until Horatio walked away. So but the question is how far away did he walk? Did he really leave it leave it at the mat or is there more there?
1: Yeah, that's the thing and she's obviously that's what she says you didn't get very far. Because, yeah, it must be hard. Obviously, something's happened between them, however far they got with that, we don't know. But he's decided to stop because, obviously, he has his wife and his kid to think about. But he's still there. You know, he's still at danger, in the danger zone of, um, you know, still having all these feelings and being there with the person. Is that, you know, a healthy place to be? It's not very, still not very good to his wife and kids, is it really, to be sticking around someone that he's obviously got feelings for?
0: malady in the uh carriage car malady mentions that uh when the time comes who are you going to blame which is almost a a prophecy of the fact that he is going to have to i don't know maybe maybe i'm just calling an apple an orange but it feels like that there's going to be some conflict between him and amalia obviously there already is but Something similar to Malady and Amalia's conflicts, it was prophesied for him, which I thought was interesting. Mary questions Amalia about what her greater mission is. That, that was another key scene. You guys have any thoughts about that one?
1: It's interesting, isn't it? She walks into the kitchen and they all suddenly stop having fun, and it makes you wonder, you know, because my initial impression is that she gets on very well with all of the people at the orphanage and isn't treated as, like, a, you know, a boss or a headmistress type thing. That she's... That it's like a family. But when that happens, it's like, oh, do they... Are they, all like, a little bit scared of her or worried? that like, Or just think, you know, she's not fun, she can't have fun. Because she's always serious and running around and having to, like, get in fights and stuff. Yeah, I find it really interesting. Obviously, I know later on she says, you know, you know, maybe the reason that she can't sing... To bring all the people here because she doesn't know whether they should, and that's really heavy because it's you know, obviously, yeah. Would you want to, you know, if you can't trust the people that are there, do you want to, the lots of other people there helplessly into the hands of you don't know what? And even once she decides that she can trust people at the orphanage, unfortunately, she's still kind of unknowingly putting them in the hands of Lavinia Bidlow, you know, do you know what I mean? So even when you, th- you, you you think you can trust the people that run the orphanage, but the person that actually runs it is not trustworthy. So it's a hard position for all of them to be in because they're all just trying to do the best they can and obviously keep as safe as they can. But um, it's a very uncertain world. It does
2: it does make you wonder if, if maybe when, you know, Mary, uh, no, sorry, Amalia says to Mary that she woke up three years ago knowing something that she shouldn't, um, it, it makes you wonder if, because of that fact, maybe she's not that open to the other people. And I, I think there, there is kind of like an air of mystery around that, especially when Mary questions everyone else and they're all there for what they think are completely different reasons.
1: Right, yeah.
0: Yeah, and when Lord Masson in the previous episode was discussing Amalia, he's like, she's not just a baker. And yeah, the, the I don't think master martial arts is the job requirements for 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 being a baker so there's definitely something about her that she's not revealing
2: yes moving on um we have this scene at ferryman's club we see that hugo is still committed to using the bidlow name um and he talks to augustus about this um and then a, a bit further on after that little discussion, we see him then saying to one of the young ladies <laughs> to file those papers. So there's still that manipulation there with Hugo and Augustus.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's still just this thing of Augustus is clearly uncomfortable and not happy, really, with what's going on. But, you know, this is his friend, possibly the only friend that he has, and I guess he doesn't want to upset him. Or And also this is, I think... Even though if he's worried about the Bidlone being on such a place, if it's his first kind of like venture on his own away from his sister, it's like a way for him to have something of his own, even if it's not something that he's fully on board with. It's just uh, if he is being really controlled and manipulated by his sister all the time, this is like the first thing that he can have some control over. So when an Augustus knows this, uh, sorry, um, Hugo knows this, right? Because he says, um, yeah, he's boss. He says, "You're you're the boss, you know. This is, this is your, this will be your thing. And that is quite enticing.
0: And it's interesting that you mentioned, Laura, that Augustus is, his only friend is Hugo and he doesn't want to lose that. Because later in this episode, we see Detective Frank Mundy asking Hugo, where are all your friends? So it might also, the same might be true for the both of them that they don't realize they're 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 each other's only friends
1: right yeah
2: i think another thing that i i really liked was the fact that um hugo turns around to um augustus and is just like just say no to everything and it's something that he doesn't and he seems to be clearly uncomfortable with he's just saying no and then he gives that kind of um, what is it like a half-hearted note <laughs> to the um, woman that keeps on kind of offering herself um, because his boss. I, I really, I really <laughs> like that. That was a good comical moment. So moving on, the episode then reveals that um, Lord Masson was was married and had a daughter. So I think it's safe to assume that we can say that that was the daughter in the previous um, episode that that passed away. Um. I think both of his wife and yeah so it says um we see the tombstones don't we quite quite clearly and his wife died in 1887 and his daughter died in 1896 um and the event that turned everyone was in 1896 so i i think yeah it's safe safe to say it definitely is the daughter
0: and it's it's interesting that his yearning for the past is clinging to the past and his fighting against change is rooted in personal tragedy.
2: It sort of reminds me of Scrooge in a weird, weird way where his past kind of affects his future and he's his quite a, uh, not an angry person, but he's definitely been affected by this in some way and he sees this this event so negatively. And then we move on to Lord Masson attending a meeting where they discuss their investments. Um, I don't know if you have any kind of views or ideas on what these investments might be i think he's investing in tesla (laughs) that's going on
1: i don't i don't (laughs) even
2: remember the
0: scene actually i uh what was this uh, what was the scene about do you guys remember
1: so i remember it's a few of them around the table when they've got those like hourglass things on the table again um I feel like one of the only things I remember from this scene is them saying um, investments and and it twigs your interest as to, hmm, what have these guys got going on? I don't think they talk about what exactly it is in any great detail, so it's kind of like left to us to think about.
0: And I think they formed an all-male committee on the touched and none of them being touched themselves, which is a good reflection of Just the world we live in today and how politics works (laughs) and how all of the committees that decide policy on people's lives and people's bodies and all sorts of stuff doesn't actually represent the people it actually affects.
1: Yeah, so I think we're going to have to see some more from them to figure out what's actually going on uh, behind the scenes. Then we see uh, the bigger king (laughs) with his henchmen and, you know, after what happened at the beginning uh, with Bonfire, and he's setting fire to all their stuff. He's obviously not a happy man. And uh, he slices a chunk of flesh off of one of them. Uh, we also see, get a closer look at Odium, uh, played by Martin and Ford. Um, who, yeah, like Sean said, we saw him very briefly at uh, the bit where they get in the carriage in the first episode. But, um, yeah, he is a big dude. <laughs> but, yeah, the Beggar King's pretty scary. He's just here to reinstate how scary he is as, like, a... A gang leader type thing. He lets the... I like how he lets the the pup, the, the new guy, he lets him off because, you know, he doesn't know any better. But the other guy, yeah, he gets it.
0: <laughs> yeah, he's, he's obviously brutal and almost sadistic. He... I don't know if he's taking pleasure in it or not. It definitely makes him more intimidating when you consider uh, Odium s- somewhat respects him. And mm. that makes you almost fear the Beggar King more, or at least for yeah. me it does.
1: Also, I like the line they say about, um, oh, Odium will take you for a walk on the Thames. And that's for me, I'm like, oh, he must be able to walk on water. That's what I'm like, oh, he- that must be his turn, which later obviously we see. So then after that we see uh, the meeting with Detective Mundy and Hugo. So yeah, this is the in the the pub, right? So... He leaves him waiting for, like, two hours <laughs> with the note, and uh, it seems like he doesn't think he's there, and he follows, you know, just this young guy to the back of the pub. And then, oh, surprise, it's Hugo, which he then claims, you know, no, we, I knew he was here, and we learn more about their relationship. But, um, yeah, I think you mentioned at the start, Chirag, that... Um, you know, he's claiming that he was drunk when they got together, and and then as he leaves the room, Hugo's like, you know, you were drunk the first time. <laughs>
0: and just in, in that, uh, just talking about that in general, when when the detective Frank Mundy first walks into the bar to meet with Hugo Swan, the bar lady asks, "What's your <laughs> preference?" And he's <laughs> kind of stunned for a second. I liked that scene, the kind of double entendre there. And then later on, at the very end, when or, or in his conversation with Mary, when Mundi says, I want to be there just in case, I want to hear you sing. And then in that scene when she's singing, that kind of brought his arc to, a, to a, um, a very beautiful close for me, because in that scene, Mundi is trying to be something that he's not, and that it ties into his homosexuality because he wants to be with Mary like he wants to hear her song and neither can be because he's just not touched and he's not straight so that's a nice little parallel there and every time yeah. it cuts to him and he's just disconnected from it he wants so badly to hear that song but he doesn't and he and he can't be something he's not he has to he he has to ultimately accept the fact that he's he's gay And he's not touched.
1: I think it's nice to see how much they clearly care about each other, though. Like, through through they've gone through this, you know, he clearly really cares about her. And she, the same, because she says, you know, she just wants him to be... She can't ask him to be someone he's not. You know, she wants him to be who he is and be happy. So both, both Swan and Mundy think that there's something going on with Amalia and that she's not to be trusted, which is funny because... As far as we're aware, she's totally fine and it's, you know, Bidlow that is the <laughs> the big bad. But even people close to Amalia, I guess, you know, think she's hiding stuff. Which I'm going to, you know, we'll we'll get on at the end of it once we get to the end of the episode because I've got a lot to say after the... <laughs> and then we've got the flyers. Obviously we learnt in the last episode with the, the young girl from the shop who gets taken after finding this flyer with Amalia's face on and going and getting taken by by the doctor. And now they're walking through the street, which obviously leads us into their investigation, to go, to, which is, I guess, what you would do first, right? <laughs> go to the address and see what's happening. So we get to see the first kind of bit of action um, with Amalia and Lucy, because it's implied in the first episode that Lucy is like the muscle, and in the second episode, when they go to the house, she's like, take Lucy to kind of look after them, or she's almost like the bodyguard mother hen of the of the orphanage i feel like so you get to see her kind of leave and go out into action for the first time and yeah we get that whole little scene little fight scene uh anything to say about that did you guys enjoy that fight scene in the?
2: yeah i I really like that and i really like the reveal of kind of like the almost cybernetic type bodyguard that was quite interesting and um I feel like that's now going to kind of open up a a new kind of little side uh, line for us to see how they're, you know, created. But I liked the fact that we saw Lucy, you know, she broke open the door with her hands. And then that little kind of fight between them both and not, not sorry, the um, cyborg and them both. Um, I really liked that whole umbrella electrocutiony bit. That was great.
0: Do you guys know the chariot driver for Amalia is also, like, an android, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. But- yeah.
0: Do you think that maybe Lavinia is using Penance's tech for her own ends, I guess? She's just taking that and putting, making it more creepy?
1: Could be. I mean, in the first episode, after uh, when they tried to take Myrtle, the carriage is seemingly left behind, right? With the... I don't know if they've made another one or if they retrieved it, but they they pop out the carriage in the little car and they leave the actual carriage with the driver on top. So, and even, you know, they've got access to the workshop, I guess. So it's highly likely that, yeah, they're taking her technology for the doctor, for Dr. Haig to kind of uh, tinker with.
0: And then she goes right back to Lavinia with all the information.
1: Oh, (laughs) this was my thing. She packs up all the boxes and Lucy's like, you know, what are you doing? Lavinia needs to see this. And you're like, Oh no (laughs) And as she leaves Lavinia, I'm skipping a little bit ahead here, but as she leaves the office, she says, We're meeting at the park at dusk and walks out, and you're like, No (laughs) Not only have you just shown her that you like have discovered all this, but you're telling her like where you're going. Again, it's all about trust, isn't it? Everyone thinks they can trust the wrong people, and I feel like people yeah are trusting the wrong people and not trusting the people that will actually probably help them it's um but again, it's really difficult when you're in a world where nobody seems to like you, so I guess you take any of the help you can get right
0: yeah, and, and I just wanted to mention real quick the the quote that we talked about in the last episode that no no one whispers about virtue. From Hugo Swan, I just realized in this moment that it perfectly describes Lavinia because she's the loudest person about her virtue, and those people often are compensating for something. So,
1: yeah, she goes on so hard about being charitable and doing all this good work, and it's just to cover up the fact that she's possibly incredibly evil.
2: (laughs) Yeah, so, um, Penance, Desiree, and Lucy, and a few of the other um, people at the orphanage, interrogate the woman who Amalia and Lucy visited, and we discover that, you know, she had a daughter who was one of the touched, and um, her daughter could turn liquids into uh, water, and subsequently um, she murdered her daughter because she sees the turned as abominations. And obviously, Lucy has, or had a child, who she accidentally killed, which when her ability kind of came on at the time. And, I mean, she completely flipped, didn't she? Um, there that, that was just such a uh, very strong emotional moment, uh, and you could mm-hmm. see that in her eyes. For, for, for me, I, I, you, you, can, you can see why she did it <laughs> and why she was about to, you know, completely uh, obliterate almost the uh,
1: woman. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think, like, with Lucy herself, obviously, you can see her slowly taking off her gloves, like mm. she's gonna, yeah. Um, but also just the reactions of all of the actors in the room, all of the characters, is fantastic. Because, obviously, they're talking about them, basically, and they're thinking, like, especially with Myrtle, I think to myself, she was in a situation where a parent, uh, the people looking after her totally could have done something like that. They were, like, scared of her. And you see that in her face. She's like, damn, like, this could have... This is something that easily could have happened to me. This is how much people hate us and are scared of us. I guess thinking that they're super lucky that they're there and they're part of this family, which in turn, you know, gives a reason for Mary to really believe in why they're there. You know, they've all gone through hardships like this. You know, hearing about what Lucy went through And now they're all seemingly kind of happy and have a home and a family that really gives you a reason to think, yeah, this is a a worthwhile cause and this is the place to be. I need to help these people.
0: Exactly. You said it better than I could have, but I'm just going (laughs) to, this is my favorite scene and I'm going to echo some of what you guys were talking about, but what I loved about this scene, and I'm going to go super religious again, sorry, sorry, people listening, (laughs) Um, but the ladies, the, the lady who they kidnapped, so her daughter turned wine into water, right? And that's the opposite yeah. of Jesus. So that's literally the Antichrist. And <laughs> that makes sense from the lady's perspective that this is the Antichrist, an abomination, as you said. And so she killed her daughter on purpose for being touched, whereas Lucy killed her child on accident because she was touched so in both of these situations being touched was more like a curse than it was a gift and i think because of that so so that scene convinces mary of what she needs to do mary needs to show the world that being touched is not a curse it's a gift because what mary has is the gift it's the better world uh so i i, I loved that that persuasion of, of mary where she takes agency no we are going to the park and um i also wanted to mention the lady's daughter who turned the wine into water is an interesting contrast with odium because while the girl was considered by her mother to be the opposite of jesus the girl still used her powers for good whereas odium literally has jesus powers <laughs> and he uses them to drown people <laughs> so, so the contrast between the two the duality of the touched the good and the bad uh, they're really playing with that in interesting ways and the theme of is being touched more like a curse or is it a gift kind of comes to a head with the arc of bonfire Annie because in the beginning we see bonfire Annie using her fire for destruction she's blowing things up She's challenging the Beggar King. All of this stuff, right? So in the beginning, Bonfire Annie uses her fire for destruction. In the end, she uses her fire as a beacon of light to guide the oppressed, the downtrodden, the touched, to the Promised Land. That was her arc and her transformation in this episode. And that perfectly encapsulated that theme. So I really loved that. I'll (laughs) say that. And, uh... Just talking, uh, did you guys have any other thoughts?
2: Uh, only a side note on, I think, Penance's character. Um, the fact that she, she I think, cares enough about all of the, the women there and she could see, I think, the, the build-up of like Lucy's aura, almost, and it was getting angry and she was quick enough to be there for her and stop her from doing anything too rash. I, I really liked that kind of little touch.
1: And that in itself is showing um, like the difference between them and other people, so... You know, they're literally listening to someone talk about killing someone that could have been any of them. And a lot of people could have just lost it and just killed her or, do you know what I mean, tortured her, whatever. And they're not. They're really very coming across, you know, they're all very kind, very family-orientated people. It's, It's good to see, like, a real clear distinction between the bad guys and the good guys in this instance, because in a lot of the other show, in like the rest of the show, it's um, sometimes the lines a bit blurred.
0: So we have, uh, we have after that, the scene where Malady meets Horatio to get the bullet removed from her chest. She reveals that they all knew each other in the past. There's um, a bit of interesting dialogue. Malady says, is this what Molly's atonement looks like? And Horatio responds, I think you blame her for something she couldn't control. And Malady responds to that. I wonder who you will blame when the time comes. When the time comes, will Malia betray him like she betrayed Malady? What are your guys' thoughts?
1: Uh, I think it's interesting to learn that not just the two of them know each other, but seemingly Horatio as well. So then it's, you know, she says that she thinks she remembers a doctor. He's like, yeah, no, that was me. Um, so is this a time? Because obviously we know that Malady was in some kind of um, asylum, and from what she says in this episode, Amalia says that she woke up three years ago, knowing things she didn't know, and basically ended up, presuming in this asylum with Malady, and then we can also assume that Horatio Horatio was a doctor there. So, again, assuming, 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 this is where they all know each other from. From just three years ago, possibly, if not before. Yeah, I guess it's fu- <laughs> It's interesting to see that Horatio, well, obviously a little bit scared because he says, you know, are you going to do to me like what you did to all your other doctors? We we, we think, you know, kill him. But um, he's also comfortable around her, you know, because he does, he does know her. Yeah, it's interesting to see this character who we've only kind of seen be a bit crazy and out there and very full-on and downright, you know, killing people and stuff, see this kind of innocence. She's there because she needs help. She's in danger of dying herself because she's been shot. And she's literally asking for help. And even though it's forced, he seems to help her because he actually cares, not just because he might die if he doesn't. So it's nice to see. I think they had a very nice dynamic between the two of them in the carriage. I think it was, on, yeah, on, I
2: liked on, it. On an argument kind of side, though, is he just <laughs> helping her because he took the Hippocratic Oath? It's his doctor's kind of, you know, it it's something he's not almost obliged to do, but, you know, it's something he took an oath for to help people in need. So in, in the flip side, do you think maybe that is just possibly why he's doing it?
1: Yeah I, yeah I guess so I <laughs> think you're
0: right because he says in the first episode he gave up being choosy with who he heals and who his clients are a lot of it, he doesn't want to be called a voodoo witch doctor so he'll take employment where he gets it he doesn't heal for a higher purpose other than to do his job at least that's the sense that I'm getting from him and I don't I mean it was that was a weirdly intimate scene wasn't it? Nakedness yeah. aside there was a lot of uh, heavy eye contact. And, it's just uh,
1: like even when he like glares at her foot, and without any words, she's just like, "Okay, I'll move my foot." <laughs> you know, it's just that it seems like they had an intimacy just in their relationship. And was, Malady nice.
0: kind of crosses a point of no return. We'll get to that in a second, but before we do, let's talk about one more time the scene where Amalia's on her way to the park. And she, her carriage gets tipped over into the river, and she's attacked by Odium, who it's revealed can walk, uh, can walk on water.
1: So yeah, this was my absolute favorite. Um, Jesus, I think it's you watch a lot of things where fight scenes can become repetitive and not very interesting, and you know they're just put in there for no reason. This was fantastic. So, as I say earlier. When he said about Odium taking someone for a walk in the Thames, Mainson thought, okay, he can walk on water. So then when you see the carriage get smashed and she flies straight out into the river, it's like, oh, it's Odium, right? Because not only is he a big enough dude to knock the carriage over, but you know he's going to just come down. And he does. And it's so menacing. (laughs) He's walking across the water and she's panicking, going to try and swim away. I love... My first thought was, can he not go through water because i guess the the best thing with with an ability like that would be able to switch on and off right so you can walk on water if you need to but go through it if you need to um but i'm thinking maybe he can't go through water and when he starts um with the chains and everything i'm thinking oh wow he's putting himself in a really bad position for someone like amalia who's you know quick-witted and good at fighting because She can totally turn this around and I'm thinking I really hope she turns this around and drags him down against the water and um, strangles him. And then it happened and I was so happy because it was just done so well. Because it is, you know, (laughs) he's, he's seemingly in this like real big position of power, but she turned the tables on him so quickly and takes out this, you know, seven foot dude.
0: It was definitely a game of whack-a-mole for a second. He he kept <laughs> punching her every every time she came up for a breath. And yeah. it's really jarring for me to see like a like a power that's so stereotypically divine being used in by like in this goon kind of way. The fact that she wins is it's kind of treated almost casually at the end. She just mm-hmm. she just kind of casually shrugs it off and continues on her journey like a normal normal thing happened.
1: It's just a normal occurrence for Yeah. For her, yeah. <laughs> get
0: attacked by the biggest man in the world. Just just a normal thing.
1: No biggie, you know. <laughs> uh,
0: and then we get to the apocryphal scene while singing her song in the park, Mary is killed by Malady's henchmen. You guys can start off with your thoughts, and then I'll I'll chime in at the end.
2: I I think for me, knowing that living you knows and all that, lot, I I kind of I had that kind of fear already that it, something like that was going to happen, and, and you're almost kind of like screaming internally, um, mm-hmm. because you're like it's it's going to happen, but you just you just don't want it to. Um, the look on Myrtle, Myrtle, yes. The look on Myrtle's face whilst the singing is going on, mm. it's, I don't know, it's just so interesting to see that, because everyone else looks so at peace, and she, she, she there's just something there, and I don't know, you know, we we don't know what that is, but this is something, and, and it would be now interesting to see, you know, uh, what that is, I mean, was she expecting the same thing you know or or what but i don't know she's just she looks horrified <laughs> yeah um... for
1: me i was i was like okay so she's clearly actually hearing whatever she's singing right because for us it's just we don't know what she's singing it's random weird made up words or whatever or just um noises but knowing that myrtle's turn is to she can speak every language it seems understand every language my I'm just like sitting there shocked because, oh my God, she can actually hear whatever she's singing, I guess that's my first instinct. She can understand that she's actually singing something, and now it's gonna be for me the anticipation of the next episode if they're gonna try and like if she's gonna try and tell the others what whatever she. Thinks Mary was actually saying yeah so it, I was super super excited and then that excitement gets like instantly brought down right when the gunman um yeah let's rip her at Mary and that was a shock horror moment
0: <laughs> yeah, I gotta give it up to you Laura I didn't think of that that's that's a brilliant point good insight
1: I was I was so like oh no I think uh because we watched it together Sean and I so I think uh, I was probably slapping him like oh my god she knows they're saying something, and Myrtle knows what it is. She can understand. <laughs> uh,
0: so, so my feeling about that scene, and forgive me in advance, or just entertain me. This might be another case of calling a like an orange, a plum, but <laughs> uh, m- the Mary Brighton death scene kind of gave me echoes of the MLK assassination, Martin Luther King Jr., because when I when I was watching that, I was thinking to myself. Who in human history was a greater orator? Who used his voice to greater effect than Martin Luther King did? And MLK was assassinated because of his beautiful voice. His voice that he used to give hope to an oppressed people. So her assassination, her silencing, felt, felt a lot like echoes of history and and then with the culminating scene of Annie Bonfire Annie bringing a new batch of the touch to the orphanage, we see that her her the hope that she gave people it it lives on beyond her. And she she gave something invaluable to the world, even though she had to leave before her time. And um, yeah, I I that scene really affected me. I love that scene. Mm.
1: Slightly smaller details um, that I enjoyed in that scene as well was after the shooting. Even though Amalie has just gone through hell and is you know soaking wet, cold, I would presume, wrapped in a blanket, kind of being um, consoled by a Penance. As soon as the first uh, shot is fired, she immediately pushes Penance out the way, and is like, you know, there to protect her. And it's just, I just love their relationship. They're so cute. They, I just love their friendship so much. And then. Just as instant as that, Mundy is straight with a handgun, literally running into f- machine gun fire. You know, to get to get the guy who's just killed, just killed Mary, which we can only imagine is um, ridiculously traumatic for all of them, but obviously especially for for because he has a personal relationship with Mary. Yeah, and he's gone from this moment of seeing her in her element because he said that he hadn't seen a sing or hadn't seen her sing on stage for so long, um, seeing her in her element to having a shot down right in front of him. It's, yeah, it's uh, emotional. And then you see how much they've all been affected by it when they walk back into the orphanage to only see, yeah, a, a, another glimmer of hope with Bonferroni and, and all the new people that have come to the orphanage for refuge.
0: Any favourite quotes? Lines of dialogue?
1: Yeah, I don't think it had as many standout kind of one-liners for me as the other episodes. Uh, I did enjoy Amalia's part when she's speaking with Mary at the beginning and she's kind of talking about herself and why she's, I guess, not particularly necessarily a great leader. You know, <laughs> she's giving you a little mini bio of herself. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed that, but I don't. Uh, yeah, I can't think of any quotes off the top of my head that I really. So I think
0: yeah, I think her line was, I-, "I drink when I shouldn't, I fight when I needn't, and I fuck men <laughs> whose names I don't remember."
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I thought that was good. That's probably the best one for me. But yeah, and then just sticking with it again, like the bit where she tells, so she tells Livinia Bidlow, you know, we're going to the, we're going to be in the park at dusk, and having looked back over it. Obviously, now the gunman's there, so you're assuming that it's Lavi- Lavinia Bidlow that has sent the gunman there.
0: All right, you, you guys want to move on to reading some letters from listeners?
1: Yeah, let's have a look at the letters. If you have a question, comment, or theory that you'd like to share with us, tweet it to us at The Nevers Podcast, without an A, Or send us an email at theneverspodcast at gmail.com and we'll read it on an upcoming episode.
2: So our first letter is from Jackie, who writes, I watch with the captions on and caught a clue. When Amano is under the spell of Desiree, when she is rambling, she starts to say that Mary is the voice of Galen. Then she stops when she realises what is happening. Might we have gotten a clue as to the name of the race that gave the powers... What is the voice of Galen? Amalia knows more than we see for now, but um, she would love to hear our thoughts on that.
0: Right. Well, it's obviously an alien overlord. I
1: think that
2: settles it.
1: (laughs) Sounds like it, doesn't it?
2: Mm, It it makes you kind of think of Gallifrey. Galen.
1: Yeah, Galen Garland. I'm not sure how we're meant to say that. And I mean, you can't always just put it out. You can't always trust the captions. I really focused on this line and this bit in that episode and I didn't pick up on it. And then yeah, with my yeah. crazy theory that I spoke about after this episode, about, you know, have they been sent here before? Do they know about it, Malady and um, Amalia? Have they been sent here years ago from some alien race? And Because this totally points to that. But yeah, it's definitely interesting. And like I say, it plays into my theory. So I'm all for it. Yeah, what is, what is this? Is it the the race of aliens or whatever.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Jackie. So
0: our second letter is from Bruce Majors, and we already know how my my Lavinia is a Nazi uh, theory has gone gangbusters. Please delete your podcast. I love the show, but your podcast is seriously deficient. Nazis tried to exterminate ethnic groups they believed were genetically different from them not people who are just raised with a different language, accent, or culture. They actually tried to culturally reintegrate ethnic Germans in other countries. Irish people are not genetically different from English or Welsh people. They just have a different culture. The whole Nazi riff your male podcaster had was just dumb, Bruce. Well, uh, I appreciate you sending in your letter, Bruce, and I... I agree with you. I think maybe we're not on the same page. I might—I uh, never blame the the listener. I might have not communicated my ideas as effectively as I could have. When I was referring to the uh, the incident of uh, anti anti Irish sentiment going on in this episode, which was prevalent in Europe, in UK particularly for a long time, even today a little bit, I wasn't. Tying that, that was, that was just a kind of a general racism that was not Nazi-specific. I was just using that incident of general racism as a point to kind of prove the Nazi theory. But just talking about where I was coming from and the perspective I had watching the last episode, I don't think it's that far-fetched to make the connection between the touched and the chosen people. I think that's a very clear corollary there. Uh, The touched were also, I mean, the touched were literally chosen by God or by an alien or whatever it may be, just as in Hebrew mythology or religion, however you want to call it, the Jewish people were chosen by God. And there's a history of anti-Semitism, oppression against the Jewish people, and we're seeing it now against the Touched as well. The Touched are attacked. They're being attacked in the streets, kidnapped, experimented on, put to work in underground... Uh, we don't know exactly what it is yet. Like, like I guess, work camps, which to me was very reminiscent of an Auschwitz kind of thing. So, But then again, this is just my view and everybody's view is as valid as another person's you know it's kind of like looking at clouds some people see a gun some people see a horse it's all up to everybody's perspective is just as valid as everybody else's and so is yours bruce so i appreciate uh, i appreciate your opinion and i thank you for listening and hopefully listening again
1: So uh, our last letter is from long-time listener and supporter of The Nevers podcast, Berger. Berger? Sorry if I'm saying this wrong. (laughs) Hiya, long-time listener. So first, I want to say hi to the new host. You're great. I teach religion, so Chirag is really speaking my language with his uh, theology musings. I wanted to write in and point out some stuff in the first two episodes of The Nevers that made me think of other shows in the Weedonverse. So Augie hating on... um, Larks feels like a nod to William, the bloody awful poet. <laughs> William likes the romantic qualities of the lark, while Augie prefers the crow, because as an ornithologist, he sees past the superficial beauty of the lark and prefers the good-natured crow. Primrose is reminiscent of Dawn's storyline in season 8, though the less said of uh, season 8 and that storyline is particularly, uh, in particular is the better. Malady has a lot in common with Drusilla. Superficially, they like to cut throats, their eyes turn yellow, and they talk crazy. Looking a little closer, they were both sexually abused. Malady is said to connect her abusers to God, and Drusilla is sexually abused in a church by Angelus and Dala. So I didn't react to anything Lavinia says in a way that Chirag did, because I expected Lavinia to be much like Adele DeWitt. Adele was unbelievably cruel and ruthless, but most of the awful things she did was to protect the relative independence of the LA branch of the dollhouse from the top suits at Rossum, and I thought that Lavinia was merely trying to protect her orphanage in the same way. This is the Victorian age. Misogyny and racism are the norm. Keeping up appearances can be a matter of survival. Lavinia's words to Augie therefore make perfect rational sense because if the Mao head of their family got involved with an Irish Catholic commoner, it could lose them the standing that they need to keep the authorities at bay. So uh, that's it. I just wanted to write in and share some thoughts. So do with it (laughs) as thou wilt, Berger. uh, And P.S. Matthew, you're a treasure for keeping the podcast going. Can you remind me what the, um, I haven't seen Buffy for a while now, what's the Dawn storyline in season eight? Oh, I know it says the less said of that is. <laughs>
0: uh, the season 8 comics where Don... I, I haven't read it, but yeah, I, I, I think it
1: a... Oh, it's the... Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. More knowledge than me on that subject then. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on the DeWitt thing. I love Adele DeWitt. She's one of my all-time favourite characters. She's just ruthless and... Again, much like a lot of the characters in this show you're not entirely sure all the time where they're coming from and whether they are good or whether, you know, they have the best interests of the people at heart. And Adele DeWitt was a lot like that. I tried to hope that even through all of her stuff that she was doing that was really bad, that she did have the best interest of at least the people in her care. And I suppose that's similar in a way to Amalia. Like, even if she's not the most perfect person, I feel like she definitely has the best interest of the people that are at the orphanage and of the touch at heart, whether whatever's happened in her past or whatever else is going on behind the scenes, I do believe that, and I'm hoping that it's true, just like um, Adele it, that you know she's like with them through to the end.
0: Yeah, for me, for that, as far as Lavinia, I think if we took that scene in isolation, I would agree with you. Uh, if she... Obviously, in that time period, racism and misogyny are the norm and a slight against an Irish Catholic commoner. I, I, I might be able to let that slide, but when you take that in combination with the badges that she placed on all of the touched and then the scene at the very end, I, don't, I can't see a reality in which she has the best interests of the touched in mind when she can kind of roll into a situation where they're being lobotomized and experimented on and put to hard work that just feels like there's there's not much redemption there but who knows anything can happen we'll have to keep watching and i, I as far as weed inverse connections i just wanted to kind of put forward the unexpected death Mary Brighton getting shot kind of reminds you of Tara getting shot.
1: I think that's one of the things in the shows, whenever someone's like, oh, I'm going to watch this, or if I try to get them to watch one of the shows, I say, you know, never try not to get too attached to anyone because they'll always seem to leave you at weird moments. You know, some shows get too pressured with their characters and you know no matter what happens they're never gonna die and I find find that I lose interest so I I enjoy shows where you know their lives literally hang in the balance every episode and you're never sure when they're gonna leave because yeah like I say shows where you think they're never gonna kill off any of their characters get a bit boring but definitely with and shows there are some of the most popular favorite characters and they and they die and you're like oh it just keeps you on your toes when you're watching the show
0: i mean in, even in life we just we have we have a genetic predilection for adaptation and change so in the stories that we write and that we watch or we listen to we like even subconsciously we need to see some change we need to see things beginning things ending people living people dying because it reflects our reality and if I was to uh, predict who's going to have the most, the, the, like, the, the Wesleyan angel transformation, I think it's going to be Augustus, who kind of starts off like Wesley did, a little, uh, a little nervous, a little uh, biting off more than he can chew, kind of bumbly. Um, and then I think by the end of it, uh, he's going to be a badass like Mm -hmm. using crows to uh fight (laughs) monsters and stuff and like doing crazy stuff i think he's going to have a a, an upward trajectory that's my that's my theory
1: yeah i would hope so too um i think like i said you warm to him very quickly because he's this nice innocent character but yeah he is quite meek at the minute isn't he i think it would be and he's got a very useful power when we're talking about who to trust he can literally become a bird and essentially go on spying people right and kind of infiltrate places that nobody else can so hopefully he will become more involved with with the fight as such for the touch and um he'll get to delve deeper into things yeah but uh if we didn't get to your letter this episode we'll be sure to read it on the next one uh final thoughts sean
2: yeah so i i overall i really did enjoy the episode as I said at the at, at the beginning the episode isn't the most memorable for me but that doesn't mean that I didn't actually enjoy the whole whole thing and by far the end scene and the scene with the water were definitely the the two best scenes um for me now I just want to see kind of where you know what's going to happen further down the line especially now we've seen this first this well I say first cyborg but you know, the the second cyborg now working for the other team.
0: Yeah. I also liked this episode, and I agree with you, Sean. Uh, it wasn't as memorable as the last two, but uh, I will say that it had the same scenes that were very affecting. I did get a little whiplashed at the end, going from that thrilling fight scene to that beautiful, merry singing. the park scene (laughs) to that heartbreaking assassination scene it it felt very like up down up down but I I did I enjoyed this episode I I don't want to quantify it but if I had to maybe a a seven and a half or eight out of ten solid episode
1: yeah I agree it was um definitely an emotional roller coaster of an episode every scene had you really, really feeling for what was going on. You know, the interrogation scene and even just the low-key ones, you know, between, like, Mundy and Hugo and Augustus and Hugo. I feel like they're really... The show's really good at drawing you in and really, really um, caring about all of these characters and what's going on. Um, Yeah, I mean, I quite enjoy being thrown from one place to another, like, throughout a show. Like I say, I think... A lot of TV shows now I get a bit bored with um, quite easily. And I don't think this was too much, but I do think that, like you guys, it was the least memorable of the... Like, if you just try and pick moments out of your head, other than those big key scenes, you kind of think, what happened in this episode? But (sighs) it's funny because I enjoyed key scenes from it just as much as stuff like the previous episodes. But yeah, as a whole, um, not quite as strong. Uh, But I'm super excited for the next episode because there's so much going on still. But definitely for me, the most exciting thing is to find out what Myrtle was hearing that was clearly not the same as what everyone else was hearing. Yeah, so uh, wrapping up. uh, You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music Podcasts, YouTube, and wherever else you stream your podcasts. For more Nevers-related content, uh, you can visit us at hbothenevers.com facebook twitter and instagram at hbo the nevers and at the nevers podcast and also at the nevers podcast without an a at the end uh, on twitter any comments or questions could be sent to the nevers podcast at gmail.com and please rate and review our podcast and help us move up the charts
0: that's all for today's episode thanks for listening and thank you laura and sean for joining me today and sharing your thoughts on the third episode laura where can people find you online
1: uh so you can follow me on my instagram and that's laura jp 1721
2: and sean uh you can find me at x motion studios on instagram and i'm chirag and and uh
0: you can find me on pay-per-view i'll be physically fighting bruce majors and uh you can also find me on twitter <laughs> uh at mayan mailman and until next week this has been the nevers podcast This episode of The Nevers Podcast was written, produced, and edited by Matthew Yamanashi at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on The Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers Podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO,
2: and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers, and all names, pictures, and audio clips, are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders.